Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny of Deljabar. Danny. Yo. Good day. Good day, indeed. <laughs> good day, sir. Um, welcome to another episode. Um, I have to admit, I just want to be up front. I'm not very prepared for today's show. That's all right, man. We got a lot of fun things to talk about today anyway. We're going to have to, I'm going to have to wing a lot of this. Um, over the past week I had family visiting, so, um, I've been busy, so I haven't been able to put the effort into doing, you know, heavy, heavy research, but I think I can comment on some stuff. For sure. You're definitely going to have plenty of things to say. And, uh, that's fine too, because I think in the next coming few weeks, I'm, I'm probably also going to be a little bit out of it too. So you might need to pick up the slack for me in, in a future episode. So (laughs) it works out. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I guess we should just say it now that you bring it up. We should just bring it. We should uh, address it right now. Yeah. So I think come end of November, early December, um, well, pretty much all of December, both of us are going to be traveling a lot. Um, I know, Danny, you're going to Puerto Rico, right? Making a big move. Yep. You're making that move. Mm-hmm. So Danny's moving to Puerto Rico in a couple of weeks. And then um, later in December... I'm going to be, um, well, I got some family stuff to take care of over the next few weeks. And then um, in December, I'm going to be away for at least a week and a half towards Christmas time. But right. I think we can find some time to squeeze in some episodes from time to time. We'll we'll figure it out. So it's not going to be like one big dry spell of us, nice spell of us noting stuff. We're just going to be, I, I just want to get fair warning. If you don't see, if you go a week without seeing an episode of Bro History, it's not, not because we, you know, we decided to pack up our bags and stop podcasting. No. <laughs> so, yeah, there's plenty of holidays, lots of traveling, a lot of family shit. You know, just our schedule is going to be a little crazy. So just bear with it. You might see an episode drop a little later than usual. Or, you know, we're going to try and record more than one episode in one week and like maybe hold them for a future week or something like that. We'll figure it out. But it'll um, all be the same great content. Some fun stuff. Anyway, we're, so. we're working on some fun episodes in the future. So um, we have something on the Korean War, and I think it's gonna. It may be a multi-part series uh, that we're working on. Um, we have some other things on on Africa that we're working on. So we have a lot of content planned. It's just a matter of time of uh, you know finding time to just put together like an outline of an episode and and uh, recording it. But I think we'll find it. Um, but today's episode, I think we're going to just go through some more or less news events, uh, rather than like really hit a historical topic, uh, some things that are relevant right now. And, uh, let's talk about the very relevant thing right now. The most, uh, interesting trial going on right now, or actually it is finished. Yeah, it's finished guys. We did it. Brittany is finally free. So 
Just this past uh, Friday, on November 12th, the conservatorship was completely terminated uh, by Judge uh, Brenda Penny, effective immediately. Now, uh, <laughs> a lot of people got involved in this, and and I think you know no one deserves more credit than Brittany and her lawyer. Than, than <laughs> well, I, I was for, just going to say that. that. I mean, I was just going to say that, dude, because I'd like to go ahead and just take our little tiny slice of credit for free and Brittany. You know, like uh, thanks for you guys listening to my uh, my pet issue, <laughs> as as the folks in Patreon say. Um, but it, I mean, it's a serious issue, and 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 there's a lot of interesting shit going on, and and even you know, I'm starting to draw a little bit of parallels to some tropes that we talk about on the show that has nothing to do with like pop culture, um, you know, just you know, following money and things like that. But I want to talk a little bit about it because I think this story is is pretty interesting because you know I was actually already planning on talking about the free Britney uh, bit because she was going to have that um, uh, trial on Friday, and it just. You know, it was just icing on the cake that that it ended. The conservatorship, you know, was done. Uh, I did, I didn't expect that to be honest. But so so rather than just talk about the conservatorship and and about what's going on with Britney, I actually kind of want to talk a little bit about a new person that's coming to light. And this is a a, a person named Lou Taylor. And uh, I, I also want to be very clear upfront in the beginning on here. She sues everyone who talks shit about her. So this whole segment is alleged information and only my opinion <laughs> so i'm not trying to get sued by lou taylor here um but anyway let, let me tell you a little bit about her because she's a character all right so a year or two before the conservatorship uh had started there were these publicly released emails from britney uh expressing some concern about some crazy woman who was stalking her Apparently, she was finding ways to get past her security and into her house. And would she, one, one of the things I read was like that she would tell Brittany that the devil was inside of her and that she needed an exorcism. Fucking weird shit, right? Wait, what? Very, very. Yeah, you, you're hearing me correctly. Allegedly. <laughs> These are all leaked emails from from Brittany. Um, but anyway, the, the point about this isn't, isn't that she was telling her that the devil was inside of her. That's the smallest little issue. I just thought it was funny. Um, so Brittany was, was talking about this woman and expressing her concern over her safety and her children's safety before her conservatorship started. And that woman ended up being Lou Taylor, right? So this, this woman's story is like absolutely insane when you start looking into it. And I want to indulge you for a little while now. If you ask my girlfriend, Lou Taylor, in her opinion, is going to be as big a takedown as like Harvey Weinstein or like Jeffrey Epstein. Now, I, I personally don't know exactly if the magnitude is the same, but uh, some big shit is definitely going down for sure. Wait a second. 100%. So, all right. So she was running an international uh, pedophile ring. I don't know. No. How can you how can you surpass that? In no, no. And, and that's. That's why that's why I'm pulling back a little bit. On <laughs> that's why you're not going there. by that. That's why you're not endorsing <laughs> that statement. Right, but but there are some elements that are similar, right? There's like a cabal and well, like, right. you know, a Who, group of people that are like, you know, doing fucked up things in the background and stuff like that. It's not pedophiles or anything like that, but So this it is, is a, pretty this bad. is just some crazy Hollywood woman who what stalks and uh harasses pop stars. Like who is this woman? All right. Just I'll tell you exactly who this woman is. So, all right. Lou Taylor is the CEO of a company called TriStar Sports and Entertainment, right? And so Lou Taylor and thus TriStar, they became Britney's manager 
right around when the conservatorship was put in place, which to my earlier point is pretty crazy knowing that, you know, this is the woman that Brittany was calling a stalker only a year before that. Right. So the woman who's telling Brittany that she has the devil inside her and that she needed an exorcism ends up being her manager around the same time as the conservatorship. And Lou is photographed in a car with Jamie Spears, her father, uh, when they were trying to do a 5150 on Britney in 2009. But today, Lou is denying having anything to do with the conservatorship. So, um, all right. This lady was her manager. Became her manager around the time of the conservatorship. Okay. And this was before that she started saying all this crazy shit? She... Brittany was saying all the crazy shit about her a year before she became her manager. Okay, I gotcha. So she was already issuing her warnings that this woman was a nut. And then then suddenly she becomes the manager. Okay, so it's some type of... At the same um, time as the conservatorship. (laughs) It's some type of machination from the dad. That's right. Allegedly. So so what's a 5151? A 5150, yeah. So a 5150 in California means that you can basically medically kidnap somebody and have them like have temporary control over them. So you're supposed to show a doctor's declaration that they're incapacitated in some way, but the rich and powerful can produce any document that they need. And and in Brittany's case, they had a doctor's note stating that she has dementia, which I, I know we've talked about before. Like that sounds like a crazy, just that's ridiculous. Brittany does not have dementia. Just like look at her, <laughs> like listen to any of her recent like, um, you know, uh, uh, testimonies and things like that. This woman clearly does not have dementia. Yeah, she and certainly she, doesn't doesn't seem like she has um any type of um issue like that. Um, no, she posts some more. weird pictures on Instagram. I mean, but that doesn't make, make but you that you know a lot of anyway, people put weird you know? pictures on Instagram. It doesn't mean you have dementia, right? And so you know, in 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 this case, you know. With a 5150, you can put somebody into a conservatorship even without telling the person. So Brittany had no idea about the conservatorship until after it was already declared. So you can kind of do this to anyone. You don't even need to be a relative either, which is kind of fucked up, right? So, you know, Henry, please don't put me in a conservatorship <laughs> is all I got to say. Um, you're not going to get very much out of me though, so <laughs> I'm kind of broke. Um, anyway... It, it gets interesting because uh, I'm going to bring up different pop star. Kanye West, he recently said that Kim, his wife, and her and Kim's team, quote unquote, uh, they tried to 5150 Kanye. Now, Kanye might be a little crazy. <laughs> so, you know, maybe there's some, some legitimacy there. But apparently they were trying to freeze all of his credit cards. And get this, Lou Taylor is close friends and works with the Kardashians and the Jenners. And so Lou Taylor was listed on the sale of Kylie's $600 million makeup deal last year. So Lou Taylor's all up in that shit. All right. So I guess I know where you're going with this. So this lady, Lou Taylor, she's Mm -hmm. part of this cabal to um, declare these 5150s on these rich celebrities who may be eccentric and uh, Mm -hmm. basically steal their money. That's correct. You're following it, right? So, and, and the idea with at least Kim and Kanye is if Kim does a 5150 on Kanye, then she has an easy path to put Kanye into a conservatorship. Then 
she would be able to hire anyone she wants to control his estate, like all his money, and it would probably be her friend with so much conservatorship experience, Lou Taylor. This is obviously my opinion, right? That's not stated facts. Don't sue me, right? Um, anyway, Lou Taylor is also new pop star, Travis Scott's manager, and that's Kylie Jenner's baby daddy, right? And I'm sure wait, you wait, probably wait. heard... Travis yeah, Scott is the guy who just had the concert where a bunch of people That's died. That's right. right. That is right. The Astroworld concert. Nine people died there, and many more have had life-changing injuries. And it's alleged that, alleged, very clear, that Lou and her team were at Travis's house the next day already in full damage control mode, like trying to get ahead of all the lawsuits. Again, my opinion only, but this is what I'm reading, okay? So... I just actually heard that Travis Scott put out a partnership with Headspace, you know, that like company that does like uh, mental health counseling, like tele-mental health or whatever. Anyway, they, they did a partnership together recently, and they're offering a free month trial of Headspace for people who went to Astroworld. Because, you know, the trauma of witnessing a crowd trample like dead people <laughs> is going to, you know. Something you can get over in a month. <laughs> so what? Head, headspace is like one of those ver- like those uh, mobile um, psychiatrist like, things, right? Like where yeah, exactly it's an affordable way to talk to somebody about certain things about, and issues, and that exactly. was going to be a partnership offering right. a free so, month trial for the right. people who who went know, to Astro may World. be experiencing you know, i mean who knows PTSD serious ptsd type PTSD. things like yeah. if they yeah. saw someone get trampled to death or were in that situation where they thought that maybe they could die that was yep, their they're solution gonna a, they're gonna get a month yeah you could get them a, a free month space yeah and you can God. only imagine like what imagine if they did that to jeffrey does, epstein does victims <laughs> right like how outrageous would that sound right yeah um, it would anyway, sound nuts it, it, in we're gonna get opinion. you. We're gonna get you a free month <laughs> yeah. trial of uh, talk space or headspace. You're gonna right. talk to somebody, a uh, right. license, and then you know you can match yourself with uh, you know any professional if you don't like your first <laughs> professional. Um, that's hilarious. And, and I don't think we're gonna get a partnership, a sponsorship with them now, though. They 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 sponsor <laughs> well, a lot of podcasts, so I think yeah, we're yeah headspace. We're really gonna does. sour that bridge right now. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> we're gonna burn that well, bridge before. <laughs> Okay, it goes on. All right, new new pop star, right? This is crazy. All right, so Michael Lohan, Lindsay Lohan's father, right? He came out recently saying that Lou Taylor tried to put Lindsay in a conservatorship right before Britney. So if you remember, Lindsay was kind of a party girl or whatever, right? Uh, very eccentric. I mean, but weren't we all in our early 20s, right? So Michael Lohan said that she kind of appeared out of nowhere and started conspiring with Lindsay's mom, uh, Dina Lohan, and started trying to get Lindsay into a rehab because that would have been the first step to start the process and the narrative that she needed for a conservatorship. And he explicitly said that Lou Taylor tried to put Lindsay in a conservatorship, allegedly. So that's another pop star that she's got her little fingers into or that she's trying to. Here's another one. Courtney Love. That's the widow to Kurt Cobain from Nirvana. Uh, so Courtney Love also stated that Lou Taylor tried to put her in a conservatorship so she could take over the Kurt uh, Kurt's estate after he passed. Okay, now we've probably established that, you know, Lou Taylor sucks, of course, in my opinion. But here's where it starts to get juicy. 
So follow the money. And, and we like to do this on the show, you know, when we talk about stuff like the military industrial complex. So this should be a piece of cake. Hopefully you can follow this. So let's review a $600 million theft. So we established that Lou Taylor, the alleged stalker of Britney, that is now Britney's business manager through companies TriStar, right? She is also the CEO of Stonebridge Capital. Now, this is a company that is managing Britney's finances. So she reports through Stonebridge to the courts about Britney's money and through TriStar about her business. Now, typically, you have two different companies who do this in a conservatorship-like situation, like two completely separate entities, so that they have a check and balance over one another, right? One holds the purse strings, one holds like the business stuff, right? But yeah. somehow, Lou Taylor has managed to figure out a loophole where no one's checking what she's doing. Now, if you ask Lou Taylor, she'd probably say something like, oh, the court is the check and balance. But in my opinion, at least this is what it looks like, seems like the judges were paid off in this particular case because all you need to do is follow the money. So Britney's estate right now has been reported to the courts to be valued at 60 to $80 million. And that number is super low because estimates from all of her Vegas residencies and albums alone put her net worth between 600 and $800 million. She, for some context, she was offered $200,000 per night per show for her second Las Vegas show that ended up getting canceled because her father was in poor health, which is totally bullshit, different, totally different story, right? This just gives you a small little sliver of the scope that Britney's worth. Britney makes bank. $60, $80 million is way, way, way understated. And that's a half a billion dollars that is just totally unaccounted for. So where's the rest of the money? I also this want to point out, isn't it? It's nuts. So I want to point out that Lou Taylor got her hands on Prince's estate a few years back when he passed away. And she's super proud of that one. Like she's, you know, like that's like her call to fame. Like, oh, I managed the Prince's estate, whatever. Anyway, so today the IRS is investigating her company for allegedly undervaluing the prince estate by tens of millions of dollars now irs wants their taxes right and you know devaluating the the uh the value of the of the estate is a, is a way to avoid the taxes that you'd have to pay on it now i mentioned prince's estate just to make the connection that this isn't ruse lose first rodeo in my opinion of course so let's bring it back to britney again britney created her most valuable trust right before she was put into a conservatorship. And this is called the SJB trust. SJB is Britney Jean Spears backwards. Um, so the SJB trust was established for her children to make sure that if something, something happened to her, that they would get her money. Right. And there's supposedly hundreds of millions of dollars in this trust. A few years ago, her little asshole sister, Zoe 101, you know, uh, forget her real name. I'm just going to call her Zoe 101. Uh, she was appointed as the president or something over the trust. And this was requested by the conservatorship to the court, not requested by Brittany. And so in 2020, 
Zoe 101 goes and asks the court to transfer almost all of the money out of that trust and into a separate account with guess what? Stonebridge Capital. The one that's owned by, uh, run by Lou Taylor. So all right. So this has become a clear. So she was conspiring with the family to basically um, embezzle money out of her conservatorship into her uh, into her own company. That's right. All right. And if it wasn't if it wasn't for like the you know the hashtag free Britney movement or whatever, you know, I mean they they really started becoming a thing. And, and, you know, these normal people, in, including some lawyers that were just like Britney fans, were reading these court documents, which were public, and they started getting really mad because there was this growing suspicion uh, and interest in what was, you know, what was this all about? Uh, a little while later, the Zoe 101, she retracted this request. So I was originally going to say that, you know, the fans, maybe they we prevented a big heist of, you know, Britney's money, you know, under this conservatorship, but... On Friday's hearing, where she was set free from her conservatorship, Britney's lawyer, Matthew Rosengard, he told the judge that he wanted to keep the forensic accountant that was on his, like, in his duties uh, for two more months because he specifically said uh, that almost all of the money is, and I'm going to quote, outside of the trust in other accounts and business units. So I, I guess they actually did manage to totally drain her, her, her trust account for her kids. So while she might be free, a shit ton of her money is all gone. And this is all allegedly, in my opinion, whatever, even though there's lots of <laughs> open information about it. <laughs> anyway, shit's getting crazy. Uh, I think there's about to be some criminal investigations now that she's free uh, to start talking about it all. And if all of this is true, or even part of this is true, like especially shit like, you know, the druggings, you know, how they were giving her fucking lithium. Um, taking her passport away, her car away, stealing her estate. I think they might be able to try this as a human trafficking scheme because they were basically forcing her into servitude. They were forcing her to work for her and, and putting her under, like taking away all of her human rights and her mobility and her speech and everything, you know? So, you know, with, and, and then it even gets bigger when, when you think about all the other celebrity elites that are linked up to this one person, Lou Taylor, there's going to be some interesting shit going down in the near future. So I don't know. I think it's fascinating. What do you think? I think it's crazy, man. It's like Hollywood is, a, is just the entertainment industry is just um, ruthless makes it seem like, oh, it's just like a competitive industry where people backstab each other. It's like pathologically uh, corrupt and sinister. Yeah. Like it's evil. Yeah. That this is yeah. going on, and it's yeah. so it's so funny. Uh, as it's not funny, but um, I guess it makes sense that you know Rose McGowan was like a big supporter of Britney because you know Rose McGowan mm -hmm. was one of the, I guess the primary uh, people who kind of started the Me Too movement. Was like that's right. You know she she kind of kind of blew the whistle on on Harvey Weinstein, but that's right. She's like you know talks a lot about like human trafficking and stuff like that. You know that's what right. I mean. Mm -hmm. So and, I guess that's where that uh, that came from because she's she's been like kind of uh, being forefront on uh, the free Britney stuff. Like she goes on every every channel and, and talks right. about it. So mm -hmm. I guess that's why it's so important. It's like a lot more than just some kind of family feud arguing over the money. There's like a scheme 
where there, there, people there are finding and leeching off uh, trust right. funds from uh, rich pop stars. And it's interesting that, you know, a Britney Spears is someone who's going to kind of bring that to light. That's crazy. It's a crazy story. Yeah, very, very crazy. I'll, I'll, I'll keep paying attention if anything other, you know, anything Britney else pops up, I'll be sure to let you know. <laughs> right, let's talk about, let's talk about some let's talk about some okay. regular shit I know. <laughs> so, yeah let's talk about some regular stuff that's more uh inclined <laughs> some regular stuff okay so you want to talk about the uk russia and belarus and all these countries yeah dude let's do so, that i told you earlier i haven't really been paying too much attention to the news so i'm hoping that you can inform me about some of these things going on sure uh, but an article I read earlier today, it was from The Guardian, and um, it was quite the article. I was uh, kind of stunned by reading some of the things in this, and not because of anything they said was, like, stunning. It was just because of how um, ridiculous this this article was and how uh, I, I can't believe The Guardian actually published this. And it was it, the title was, UK must be ready for war with Russia, says Armed Forces Chief. And basically, you know, it's just the article is talking about how um, in the context of uh, the border dispute between uh, Poland and Belarus, um, mm -hmm. you know, with this migrant wave, which you're going to tell me about in a second, um, yep. you know, that's part of Putin's plan and stuff. And, you know, Belarus is linked up with uh, with with Russia and Lukashenko is like a, is a puppet of Putin and, you know, as part of his maniacal pot. And that's why the UK needs to have a, be ready for, you know, a potential war with Russia. And then it starts to, to, to source the steel dossier, a uh, Christopher, not steel dossier, but Christopher Steele, which is like, why would you even source that guy at this point? Like it's the most discredited <laughs> man in, well, in history and like in well, like uh, okay. in our modern news. So it was just a really the, strange um, article. And I kind of I mean, want to outside hear... of that outside of that you know steel dossier bit. Um, I think there's something there, but but we'll talk more about that. What, what were you going to say? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I want to hear about um, I guess specifically what's going on with right. um, this this uh, migrant crisis going on in the border between Poland and, and Belarus because there's some some rich history here. Um, For sure. You know, the, yeah. Belarus used to be part of the the um, you know the Polish borders when Poland yep. was the part. Oh. It was you know a different country. It was not the nation state of Poland right now. It was when it was part of the Lithuanian Poland Commonwealth. Right. Um. So I, I, I kind of want to hear you know what what how this ties into uh, I sure. guess the nation building process and and sure. all these European borders. So uh, I guess I'll leave the floor to you my friend awesome and feel free to jump in whenever you like um you know lukashenko think, yeah lukashenko we gotta start, start there our, our our favorite european dictator the last uh, he's dictator up to some of shit. europe yeah seriously he's up to some shit allegedly if you want to if you want to learn more about him you can you can listen to our episode on on exactly him um and so allegedly poland and other eu states are accusing him of weaponizing migrants coming mostly from the middle east and central asia as a payback for some sanctions that were placed on Belarus, you know, since the last election in August of 2020. So here's what we know so far about the current crisis. Uh, since the beginning of November, migrants started showing up uh, at the Belarus border with Poland on the Belarusian side, uh, as well as other European borders with Belarus. 
Um, right now, there are at least 2,000 migrants um, at the Polish border near uh, Kuznica. And it's turning into an absolute humanitarian crisis. So there's very little food, water, medical supplies for the migrants. And, you know, it's November in fucking Poland or Belarus, technically. And they're basically freezing to death in the forest right now. And the crowd is mostly young men, uh, which is noteworthy. But there are women, children, and elderly people there, too. And... Poland isn't letting them into their country, and Belarus isn't letting the migrants turn back and seek refuge in one of their border cities. So, the thing about this yeah, is Poland that they have tough. Just, they have they're they're they're, they're tough very on, very uh, tough on on, on yeah. border control for sure, hundred percent. But the thing is that they didn't just get there magically, though, right? They just didn't, you know appear out of the ground, right? And and if you ask Lukashenko, he would deny what is the going narrative right now, and and that narrative is that. Allegedly, Lukashenko. I'm saying that word a lot today. <laughs> I was really allegedly. scared of getting sued. Allegedly, I think no. Just uh, you're better off <laughs> saying allegedly in front of everything you say. Yeah. Um, okay. So allegedly, Lukashenko's government eased up on uh, the tourist visa process from the Middle Eastern and Central Asian countries, and made it super easy to travel to Belarus from those areas, and. Apparently, they were lured there with the promise of easy access to the, you know, European Union states uh, vis-a-vis the the Belarusian border. So that's the narrative. Uh, You probably already know by listening to this podcast, though, that people from those areas are fucking desperate to get out and go to Europe. And I haven't been able to find anything concrete about the specific nationalities of the migrants yet. But if I'm venturing a guess, I'd say that a good amount of them are probably Afghans fleeing Taliban rule. But that's just my guess, right? They could be coming from anywhere. You know, there's plenty of places where where they want to get out and go to Europe for sure, um, where they can be coming from. Anyway, uh, so so these migrants, they, they basically hopped on cheap flights to Belarus. And upon arrival in Minsk, either they freely went to the borders or they were forced there by Belarusian authorities. This part isn't super clear to me yet uh i'm getting a lot of narrative and bullshit so i'm I'm not entirely certain which is true yet but the point though is that they fly to belarus and then they go to the border how they get there is up for debate want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money well i've got the podcast for you i'm sean piles and i host nerd wallets smart money podcast on our show we help listeners like you make the most of your finances I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. 
but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. So I read this article on the BBC, and uh, they told some stories about how some Belarusian authorities seized their phones and pushed them towards the border fence by force. That's kind of the, you know, the narrative that I'm hearing. I don't know necessarily how much I want to believe it or not yet, but, you know, seems seems like a thing, especially after I talk a little bit more about the motives. Um, but Lukashenko's story is that they arrive freely and legally, and Belarus is just acting like a hospitable state for the migrants in transit. Honestly, I find Lukashenko's story a bit hard to believe because, like I, like I will point out there, he's got a motive um, to do harm to, you know, EU states. Uh, but to talk about that, we got to talk about a little bit of history. So last year, we, we, we covered a story on Belarus and Lukashenko specifically. So some quick background for that in case you don't want to listen to the whole thing. Uh, Belarus's story is super interesting and long, um, but you know Henry kind of pointed it out a little earlier. In a nutshell, the relevant parts for this story is that you know they also Belarus also has a really complicated relationship with Poland. It was annexed by the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth before they were eventually taken over by the Russian Empire and then later became a Soviet state. There's also a pretty uh, important but equally complicated history of the Polish diaspora, so Polish people living in Belarus that were uh, apparently ethnically cleansed from Belarus by the Soviets because they were fearing kind of the the Polish anti-communist leanings. A lot of information on that, super interesting uh, uh, story. But as a result of this, Belarus becomes very culturally Russian, and they start this kind of quasi-beef between them and Poland. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, Belarus becomes its own thing, but it retains its Sovietness to this day. And, and when you say retains its Sovietness, it still is like a state-run economy, like it's still a centrally right. planned economy where the state owns all of its major in- industries. That's right. And that's what I mean by Sovietness. So like technically it's not the Soviet Union. No, it's a democratic government. Technically it's not part of the Soviet Union, but it's, um, you know, it was one of the main, um, you know, it was Ukraine, Russia and and Soviet and and Ukraine, you know, were the main signers of to dissolve the the Soviet Union. Um, And and that's kind of how it disintegrates with, with, you know, the, the, the treaty signed between them. But, um, yeah, they they keep their state-run economy, and they don't, you know, um, try to uh, liberalize no. like Russia does. They didn't go through the shock. Like Ukraine. They didn't go. They didn't go mm-hmm. through the shock therapy that Russia went through, that Ukraine mm-hmm. went through, and because of that, and you know, I'm not saying that the state-run economy is better, but they didn't go through those horrible pains that communist countries go through when they do liberalize. Because usually, what happens is that when a communist country liberalizes, um, they will, uh, 
you know, it will still maintain its corruptness. Like the people who right. are in the stat in the state, they'll be the people who can kind of uh, lend. They have the power to kind of distribute the, the former industries, and a lot of times these industries that the state formerly owned will be bought up by like a handful of people. Right. So it's, it's it, kind it will, of true in Belarus right now, though. So yeah, you know. But there's no more, more greater example of when Russia, when all the industries in Russia were all purchased by a bunch of oligarchs. That's um, right. So you know, we're we're not talking about companies. We're talking about industries were purchased. So that's right. People were buying oil, like the, the oil industry, industry the right. gas industry, exactly. the coal industry, the mining. You know, mm-hmm. mining different um, industries within the, the mining sectors, like industry, right? Agriculture. Mm-hmm. You know, they just bought it, and you know, eventually. The, these groups were all kind of, um, you know, mafia types. You know, they assassinated. They had they had heavy ties with mafia groups from uh, specific specifically from um, um, Chechnya, and uh, it was just extremely extremely corrupt. Especially in you know Boris Yeltsin's Russia was extremely extremely corrupt. Um, so you know they got liberalism, but they got the worst liberalism. They got like <laughs> yeah. the worst yeah. kind of crony capitalism liberalism. Um, kind of a can offer cast, basically cast it mm-hmm. on their countries so they they so belarus does have that you know kind of still soviet like you said sovietness um to this day and um you know a lot of the people who are gonna say hey like leave belarus alone the only reason why the media is hard on belarus is because deep down what they want to do is they want to um they want to like get lukashenko out of there Right. Because Lukashenko is, you know, he's called the last dictator of Europe. They want to and, get and him out of here. Reason. So, <laughs> yeah. so um, you know, cronies can come in and just like buy up all of uh, Belarus's profitable uh, sectors in their economy. Right. Right. And, yeah. You know, so so there's like, a side to both. There's there's a side to both things here, you know, behind the narrative. But I think it's it's kind of true, you know, that he is a dictator. Um you know, oh yeah, well, his election last year was absolutely well, ridiculous. We'll talk about that. Yeah, we'll get there. Uh, so, a bit more on the history before we can get to that part. So, in Belarus, uh, you know, in in that in between time when when the Soviet Union had collapsed, there was this nationalist political party called the Popular Front, and they were trying to take power in Belarus, but the Popular Front just wasn't popular. <laughs> um, and more people in Belarus were basically attached to the Soviet Union than than like a national identity. That's just the, you know, that was their culture. Uh, so when they finally did have elections in 1994, they voted in Lukashenko. And Lukashenko used to run a collective farm, one of those, you know. I think it's important to, to, to point out, you know, one of the main drivers of the end of the Soviet Union was nationalism. Right. Because a lot of states who were Soviet satellite states you know, they had identified with the, you know, the, the nationalistic tendencies never really um, left the the countries. You know, like right. Poland was still, there was still Polish nationalism. Mm-hmm. There was still German nationalism. There was still Ukrainian nationalism. There was still nationalism in a lot of these countries. And that was one of the driving things that made the disintegration of the Soviet Union possible. I know, right. I know in addition not to... So, not so much in Belarus, where they were just more yeah. Soviet than they were nationalist. I mean, they still, if you look at Lukashenko, he still dresses like, you know, he doesn't, he does wear the, the three piece suit, but you know, he also has his like, um, you know, his Soviet, uh, armed uniform, military military uniform, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, when when he took power in 94, he basically made it Russian. <laughs> he established Russian yeah. as the official language, and he restored a bunch of Soviet symbols. And surprise, surprise, the former collective farm boss ended up being a total piece of shit. So he, he dissolved parliament pretty much right away, and he still clings to power to this day. So now we can talk about that election. So flash forward to August of last year, Lukashenko was announced by the Lukashenko-controlled election commission to have won a sixth term in office, and they gave him 80% of the vote, which is not a record. I think uh, other other dictators have, have gotten better scores than that, but still, nonetheless, it's a little suspect to get 80% of anyone to agree on anything, you know, um, let alone Lukashenko. So Lukashenko has won every single presidential, quote-unquote, election since 1994, with all but the first one being labeled by international monitors as neither free nor fair. The aftermath of that election, of course, was a massive protest, which, as you can guess, was violently quelled by a strongman like Lukashenko. We're talking about, like, rubber bullets and tear gas grenades and, like, crazy shit. It was, it was nuts. Absolutely nuts. Listen to the last episode if you want to get more information about that. But, you know, this triggered a series of sanctions that were imposed on Lukashenko and his cronies and just Belarus broadly. And that's kind of where we left off on that last uh, last time we spoke about this. So we're kind of caught up now. And so since then, we've been seeing all these sanctions coming around from all these countries. So, uh, for example, the UK government said that it's going to stop all uh, Belarusian air carriers uh, from flying over or landing in Britain, uh, among other financial sanctions. Uh, Canada said that they were targeting key sectors of the Belarusian economy. Um, oh, one interesting one, uh, a specific target uh, was the Belarusian National Olympic Committee, which was headed by Lukashenko's son, you know, crony, um, nepotism. So this, basically the son was accused of participating in an attempt to force an Olympic sprinter named, and I'm going to ruin this, uh, I'm going to say Kristina Tsimanukaskaya, something like that, a sprinter. Uh, he was trying to get her to come back to, like force her to go back to Belarus after she defected while she was out there. And guess where she defected to? Poland. She defected to Poland. So that's an interesting little bit. All right. So got all these sanctions, you know, a lot of crazy shit going on. I just wanted to tell you a couple of quotes from Lukashenko during an eight hour long press conference that should give you everything you need to know about his motivation to start a crisis after those sanctions were in place. So one thing he said was, you will choke on these sanctions. Okay. Another thing, you are risking starting World War III. Is that what you are trying to push us and the Russians to? Henry, does that sound like a threat to you? Um, that's what Lukashenko said in response to the sanctions. That's right. Um, you're risking World War III, and are you trying to push us and the Russians too? Um, and also, you're you will choke on these sanctions. I mean, it, it definitely sounds like someone who's like, what, are you, what the hell are you doing? You're destabilizing the peace. I don't know, man. I guess you, could, not- I guess you could say it's a threat. 
Sounds like a threat, man. You will, especially you will choke on these sanctions. I mean, the guy went on for eight hours and he said a lot more, but I didn't have time to fucking review the whole damn thing. And this guy's a nut too, by the way. So yeah, he there's like, man, when he when there was these protests last year, he came out like holding a gun like an ak yeah it was like an ak-47 above his head like he's a sand person or some shit like that like, yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> and no, i know that he's they're pretty crazy yeah he's there he's kind of a, a nut but i mean i usually the people who are in power for that longer are pretty nutty and crazy mm-hmm. all right well listen if you take all of that into consideration right the fact that there were all those sanctions, the fact that he's talking shit about it and that he's not happy about it, the migrant crisis really starts shaping up to be an intentional effort by Lukashenko to hit back from the sanctions that were imposed on Belarus. See, Lukashenko's options are, are pretty limited here. Now, he could, and he has uh, on several occasions, threatened to shut down the gas exports to Europe. Because remember, we just said this before, the whole industries are state-run, right? So they can do that. It's not like a private corporation or entity or anything like that. Like, they can just totally shut it off. Um, but if you were to do that, that's a direct economic assault and would very likely be followed up with even more sanctions on Belarus, which would, of course, cripple his economy. And that's on top of the loss of revenue that they get from exporting the gas in the first place, right? So just not really a good option. It's, it's on the table but not really a good option. And that's the most leverage that Belarus has over Europe because they do export quite a bit of gas, right? And a lot of European countries are quite dependent on it. But I think that manufacturing a migrant crisis is kind of a decent option if you're a dictator and wanted to, you know, punch back for sanctions. Why? Because I think it creates kind of a plausible deniability. So Lukashenko can pretend to be the caring person that allows the migrants to transit Belarus as they seek asylum from ongoing conflicts. Um, and then he can direct those migrants to the borders of the countries of his choice, like Poland, who would then be faced with a choice of their own. So either they take in the migrants under international law for asylum, and then they have to deal with that financially and politically, or they could deny the migrants and they can look like the bad guy, which is exactly the narrative that Lukashenko is trying to put out there right now. Like, oh, look at Poland there. Look at all these migrants we let into our country. And now Poland's being a little dick and they're not letting them through and international asylum law and blah, blah, blah. That's what they're saying. Yeah. So you're attacking like the international community by the international community's values. That's right. That's so right. Poland is criticized a lot for its by other european countries but for its um its tough borders yep so but belarus is criticized because it's not you know not really a democracy <laughs> no not at all so it's not a fair democracy you know it's it's a dictatorship let's just be real you know we That's can right. just call a spade a spade mm -hmm. and um so you know they go after Europe, like, you know, the European Union or NATO, you know, they can do that by kind of attacking, attacking it from the liberal kind of internationalist. Uh, yeah, attacking uh, from the left. Yeah. Kind mm -hmm. of neoliberal. They can attack them from like the neo uh, neoliberal kind of internationalist agenda. Like, oh, you're not taking 
uh, migrants, like how you are not, um, you know, how do you criticize us when you don't care about these people type thing? Right. Exactly. That, that's what they're, that's, and it's, it's kind of a good option. I'm not saying it's a good thing to do, but like. No, it's not a good thing. But, you know, dictators, they have a history of doing that. That's like a common weapon that a lot right. of uh, kind of pariah states will use. That's what Gaddafi used to tell Europe. So he'd be like, hey, like, if you fuck with me, you know what I'll do? I'll open up the floodgates. Because a lot of people, a lot of African migrants, they transport from Tripoli to yeah, that's right. Europe. Mm-hmm. And um, he warned them that, like, hey, if you get rid of me, look what's going to happen. You're going to be um, flooded with refugees and migrants. And not right. just, like, migrants from Libya. It's, it's, it's migrants economic from migrants from all of Africa. That's so he right. kind of kept a floodgate on that. Mm-hmm. And look what happened. Look what happened after he died. Right. After he was killed, that happened. Like there was a there was a huge uh, migrant crisis in the European Union, and they're um, struggling with that, right? And yeah, and they're struggling with that. So there is leverage in weaponizing migration from, um, you know, the third world, really, it's, or it, developing I mean, it's, world. If you want to put a politically correct label on that, that's right. Or I mean, not it, even it, just it, politically correct. You know, from. Um, no regions of the world that are very (laughs) highly unstable that's right yeah it's just correct you can drop the politically part um you know so and and to your point poland is super like hard on their borders right they're they're actually uh, when it comes to the border topic they're they're pretty much like you know the right wing here in in the u.s for the mexico border right they're just like absolutely not we need strong borders you know that's how we keep security you know, we need to be able to uh, exercise our sovereignty, yada, yada, so on and so forth. And any of the arguments that you would hear, you know, from the right here in the U.S. about our Mexican border is exactly what Poland would be saying. So, you know, if you are of that particular political persuasion, you can see why Poland decided to take the latter option. Right. But it, it's kind of it's honestly a loaded choice. Because Lukashenko is clearly manufacturing this migrant crisis as a means to retaliate against sanctions and stick it to Poland for the beef that they've had, you know, longstanding beef. And migrant crises are difficult to solve. So Poland, just like any other country, has their rights to control their borders, but their aversion to taking these migrants makes it look bad on the international community. And so international asylum law would dictate that Poland probably should take them in that they have an obligation to take them in and process their claim of asylum you know what they do with them afterwards is you know up for debate but that at the very least that they should let them in and when you consider the point of security which many polish people do as most of these migrants are young men it could potentially present a security risk to take them in but the alternative is that blocking them makes them freeze to death in the forest and it just doesn't, it's just not, you know, it's not an easy thing. I know, not taking, not taking them in, they're in like the worst possible situation because they're in the freezing snow. I mean, I don't know if it's snowing, but they're in the cold. It's freezing. They're literally right out in the cold in the forest from the Middle East, right? Or from the greater Middle East, right. most likely Afghanistan, would you presume? But if not Afghanistan, probably somewhere. Someplace um, warm. Let's either in Africa yeah. or in the Middle in the Middle East. Um, you know, they're not used to this cold. And I mean, you don't I have don't to know be used to have... it. You don't have to be used to it to die from it. You know, like people will uh, well, die. I mean, it's especially worse outside. if you're not used to it. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. And so, you know, it, 
the thing is that Belarus is obviously equally to blame here, right? They aren't they aren't taking in the migrants for asylum either, right? They're they're not like all high and mighty here because they're not letting them turn around from the border and like set up shop in Minsk, you know. So they're wrong also. Here's where it starts to get super dangerous, and and it kind of relates back to the article that you were reading about, like it being all World War Three and shit, because militaries are starting to get involved. So thousands of Polish troops have been sent to the Belarusian border to counter what it says was over 300 attempts to illegally cross the Polish border, including like they were like trying to cut the wire fences and like dig holes or some shit, like jump over them. Like they're trying to get over. They're desperate. And so they, their border patrols, their border police are well overwhelmed. So they send thousands of, you know, they do exactly what the U.S. would have done. Send a bunch of National Guard down there, you know? Move a bunch of troops over to, to help assist in, in securing the borders. And Lukashenko then turns around and says, okay, that goes against military treaties because you're not supposed to station that many that many troops on, along the border. You're not supposed to do that. That is, that is an aggressive posture. And then he also makes open claims that Poland is looking to annex Belarus in an attempt to reform the 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 Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And, you know, he's responded by moving his air defenses to the west of Belarus to, quote, defend his airspace. And now, wow, so he really, so he's making the claim that Poland's trying to annex Belarus? That's right. That's right. They're like, oh, look, look, they're moving all their troops over to our borders. We need to secure our borders now. So we're going to put all of our anti-air and all of our other, you know, artillery and shit on the east coast so they're moving them all uh, excuse me on the west coast so they're moving them all from the east to the west right now right now at this very moment <laughs> they're trying to capture their borders from the 1600s That's <laughs> like <laughs> they're trying to, to hey. renew their border their integrity from the from the seventh from the 18th century that's what they're trying to do I didn't, I didn't write this down, um, but I, I do remember reading something to, to the credit of Lukashenko for just a very small second. Uh, there was a, uh, a Polish foreign minister who's now in, like one of the EU guys, um, and he had made a remark once that, of course, Poland has an interest in Belarus because they have this 400-year-long history where they were basically brothers, right? Um, and Lukashenko takes that in saying, oh, see, that's the proof. They want to take Belarus. You know what I mean? Um, and when, in reality, this minister is, is probably saying something to the effect of like, like we give a shit about Belarusian people and we want to make sure that they're okay. And, you know, they've, they've set up several, you know, uh, um, several, uh, funds. I think they, 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 they gave like, I don't know, some tens of millions of Zlotys, uh, which is their, their money, um, to, uh, to Belarus uh, a while back to help them set up for economics and shit like that. And of course, Lukashenko is all like, oh, they're trying to, you know, undermine us by dumping money into, you know, our things and whatever. Anyway, it's, it's, their beef is long and complicated. I guess my point though here is that Polish troops are moving in to secure the border. Belarus is using that as an excuse to move their, their air defenses to the border so now all these militaries are starting to coalesce around this fucking border, right? Which is obviously not a good idea, right? Because that's how that's how wars get started. All it takes is just one stupid mistake, you know, for some shit to go down. And let me tell you about how a stupid mistake can be made. 
because I want to add to this Russia's involvement, big old Russia here, right? So back before the migrant crisis, on September 10th, the Russian and the Belarusian militaries conducted a joint military drill in the Brest region named Slavic Brotherhood 2000. Also, I want to note that Serbian forces took part in this exercise and the Balkans are going through their own set of shit right now. And I also wanted to think about and talk about them, but I just didn't have time. Uh, Balkans might be breaking up. I don't know. Who knows? Sir, let's let's put let's. I want to talk about that a, too, but I, yeah, I don't want put to put a pin in let's, it. Yeah, let's, let's, let's put not, a pin in that and maybe talk yeah. about it next week. The point though is that Russians and Belarusians at the, at the minimum did a joint military drill in Brest, which is along that border. Now, this was all before the migrant crisis, right? And sometimes military exercises are just that they're just exercises, but in hindsight, it starts to look a little bit suspect. More recently. Uh, Russia has been flying these sorties of nuclear-capable Russian Tu-160s, so these are strategic bombers, to basically practice bombing runs uh, at the uh, Ruzani firing range, which is located uh, in Belarus about 37 miles east of the border with Poland. 37 miles ain't far. <laughs> like, that's, that's nothing. Um, so they're running several nuclear bombers up and down 37 miles away from from Poland, right? And as a part of this joint training, Belarusian fighter jets simulated an intercept, right? So they they pretend like, you know, the the Russians are coming there to bomb them, and then they the Belarusians uh, scramble their jets to try and intercept those bombers, which, you know, outside looking in, if you're Poland, you're like, "Holy shit, there are several Russian bombers and then now several uh um Belarusian uh, 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 fighter jets in the air 37 miles away from our border. Like, that's kind of scary, right? Especially when you have tensions with another country that they happen to be doing it with, right? Now, you know, this is the second time uh, in two days that Russia has sent its nuclear-capable bombers in, you know, into the skies over Belarus. And, and also on Wednesday, a pair of uh, Russian Tu-22M3s, these are long-range bombers, they flew a similar patrol uh, on Wednesday, and the Belarusian air defenses, so ground air defenses, started practicing intercepting those. So there's a lot of military assets on the Belarusian side, Russian and Belarusian, moving around, doing a lot of shit in the last couple of days, all around the same time that this migrant crisis is happening, and and Poland is is pushing a bunch of troops, thousands of troops to their border, right? Very fucking dangerous. Now, I'm not buying the media narrative here. Uh, and, and that is that Russia is threatening Poland or the EU with a strike by flying its bombers close to Poland. I don't think that's what's going on. But I do think that this is both a way to prepare Belarus for a conflict with Poland or the EU broadly. And it's a way to potentially trigger an accidental attack on Russian or Belarusian forces. And that could be used as a cause for a counterattack. Right, so like imagine some radar dude in Poland is sitting at his at his you know uh, station, and he notices uh, something in the air that's coming a little too close, and he's like, "Shit, I think they're gonna cross the border." Maybe he gets it wrong. Thirty-seven miles is a small amount of space, right? And then maybe he orders a, a you know a shot to get fired. Only takes one. Only takes one. That's all I'm saying. 
Yeah, well, just to go pull back to that article uh, that we that I was talking about, um, mm-hmm. you know, they're they're quoting uh, General uh, General Nick Carter, who we've talked we've talked about before on mm-hmm. this show. Um, he he's the guy does from give right? kind of disclaimer. He, he to, was married to Mariah Carey for a little while. Yeah, he was married <laughs> to Mariah Carey. So um, he was talking. He was saying he doesn't think it's very likely that we go to war with Russia, that there's going to be a Russian war, or that Vlad. He did give a disclaimer in this article, and the Guardian did publish this that you know he doesn't think that Putin would ever want to have a war with the West. No, and of course not. I don't know. It's 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 so dumb. This is so. It's just there's no reason to fight over this. Mm-mm. There's not a single reason at all in the world to fight no. over something so minuscule. No, no, it's not. Uh, and this uh, is why I'm, this is why NATO alliances are so dangerous. Yeah, I mean potentially because they all have that mutual um, defense pacts with one another. But I mean, here's the thing. Like I said, I don't believe that because there's a lot of narrative coming out, especially on the the left me- the left wing media here. Um, in the United States talking about how, you know, Russia is flexing their dick muscle and, you know, threatening Poland. And I think that's bullshit, you know, to that point. But, you know, it, that's not what worries me. What worries me is all of that military, you know, yeah, I know. on the border, you know, it, it's really easy to make a mistake. Like it's, it really is. It really is. It's, 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 it definitely sounds dangerous if, um, you know, they're something can very easily go wrong. And you know what's funny? You know, this is kind of in, in the background of this. There's this guy. You should have watched. So the other day, this was on Thursday, I think. We're recording this on Sunday, um, the 14th. So on Tucker Carlson, there was this Republican senator who, or yeah, Republican uh, congressman who, who um, his name was Mike Turner, I think. And he goes on Tucker Carlson and he is talking about how the Russians are amassing forces and are about to invade Ukraine. <laughs> and I think that this guy thought that, you know, Tucker was just basically Sean Hannity or just kind of like a run-of-the-mill Republican. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, yeah. Tucker Carlson's a populist. Mm-hmm. So he's like, you know, we need to, you know, put troops. You know, we need to—basically, um, he, he, basically he was um, endorsing the United States putting troops in the Ukraine— and also, you know, further arming uh, Ukraine with lethal aid. And Tucker Carlson was like, why? Like, I just like, I don't get it. Like, like, why? Like, why? So they call like, I don't like, why? And then he, and then Tucker Carlson does, and this is where I didn't disagree. This is where I disagreed with Tucker Carlson. He's like, if anything, we should be allied with Russia to be a bulwark against China. But instead, we're putting, <laughs> oh, we're, we're um, antagonistic against Russia and we're putting them in bed with China, but we should actually be working with Russia to be a bulwark against to be more aggressive with China. So, I mean, his conclusion ended up <laughs> his being conclusion kind of is stupid, off, but, but at least the, the his conclusion initial... is off. But his instinct to look like the list to read this guy like he was just kind of a MIC crony who was just. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't look at what his um, who endorsed this guy or where his finances or who donates to his campaigns and stuff like that or who he's working for on behalf, like who mm-hmm. he represents in government is probably just i looked real quick actually on open secrets and this guy it's mike turner out of ohio look it up real quick while you do that you know it's funny that tucker said that we should use we should be allied with russia against china because 
um, right now, Russia and China just completed their first um, joint naval patrol. Uh, and it sounds like they're actually getting buddy buddy right now. Uh, so either he's right and we've been pushing them to, uh, you know, make friends with China or he's totally off the mark and Russia would never uh, uh, be a bulwark against China in the first place. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. No, I think I think there there is truth to what he was saying. I just don't necessarily think that the United States needs to have an aggressive uh military policy against china like that's what it's against anyone frankly and like, <laughs> like i don't i'm not in favor of like being antagonistic towards china either that's where i disagree mm-hmm. but i think there is truth yeah. where you know kind of labeling both them both as pariah states is just going to make them work together mm-hmm. so um you know i guess you could equally say that us you know from the other way around you could say us being antagonistic against china is putting them in, in bed with russia you know that's i guess right. you can you can yeah. work with it on that logic as well you can take both sides, um, both angles but yeah. it was very it was a very interesting interview because uh you know this guy he, he must have thought that he was just coming on and like talking to the five and he was gonna have this <laughs> yeah like big a softball audience something, you know yeah it's kind yeah. of like the run-of-the-mill conservatives but he didn't realize like that you know tucker and then also he went into like we should not be using our troops in russia or in europe we should be putting our troops on the border. Yeah. Of so that, with that kind of right, <laughs> the right wing, I mean, with, I don't really entirely agree with, but I agree with half of it. You know what I mean? Like with yeah, not no, putting our troops in at the very least, I you know he's half right, but it is, it is very interesting um, because you're also hearing this like, Oh, what's going on over there? No, you're good. Keep going. Okay. You're also um, kind of seeing these, alerts again that russia is amassing troops on the ukrainian border right and then if you look at like if you actually look into it they're like 60 miles out off the border yeah yeah like russia can't (laughs) mobilize troops in its own country or like have a training or any type of uh movement of troops 
within 60 miles of the Ukrainian border. Or I mean, like if there's going to be a war, right like it's going to be border. fought on, around those borders. So they can't like just mobilize or do any type of training exercises or war games or whatever. Within right. Their Sometimes own exercises are literally just They're exercises. amassing. And they're, yeah. It always just asks, like, oh, Russia's about to invade Ukraine. Like, and yep. then they use that, like, well, we've got to send lethal aid. Well, you know, uh, Boeing and uh, Lockheed Martin need to get some, get some, uh, a piece of uh, this, this uh, escalation over here. So I don't know. It's just all sounds like a uh, poo poo that no one, should be no we shouldn't really give a shit about the border like i'm polish i don't give a shit what goes on between the border border skirmish between poland <laughs> yeah. and uh and belarus i'll just be completely honest i don't i don't i wouldn't care i mean i only care insofar as i care about the you know innocent human lives that are at risk not just yeah the, of course you know people of poland and belarus but also these migrants that are freezing to death right now that's the only. Yeah, that's, that's obviously hard. That's the only thing I care about. Everything else, I can give a shit less about. Right? Like, I don't care about the beef between both of those, you know, countries. I, I think it's fucking stupid and juvenile. But you know, it is what it is. It's yeah. Fucking, well, fucking politics. Do you want to talk about um, before we wrap this up? Do you want to just do a quick follow up on our last episode about inflation in Zimbabwe? Because you know, yeah, there's, I, know, I know you were updates. reading about it too. So yeah. So, it's interesting because we were last week we were talking about how you know the the expectation for inflation has increased and we did an entire episode on the hyperinflation that took place in Zimbabwe. That's right, and just how outrageous everything got there. Um, you know where they were printing hundred trillion dollar uh, Zimbabwe dollars. So um, just to give you an update, so the annualized CPI came out this week. So after we recorded it, and it was at a, a six point two growth rate. Sorry, what's and CBI again? It is the Consumer Price Index. Okay, thank you. So basically, it measures the average change in prices over time that consumers pay. Okay. Like, it's an index that... It's an inflation um, it, measuring stick. Yeah, it's a, it's one of the main measuring sticks of inflation. It's gotcha. not entirely the most accurate thing in the world because the CPI doesn't really measure inflation to its full extent because, mm -hmm. you know... There's a myth that companies just pass their own cost on to their customers. And this is actually used by a lot of right-wingers. So mm -hmm. when you talk to about taxes, for example, like right. corporate taxes, um, they'll be like, hey, um, if you increase a tax on a business or on if you increase corporate taxes, then they're going to pass all their costs on to their customers. And that's that's right. pretty pretty standard kind of like Fox, Fox News, um, Reaganomics uh, kind of economic talk. Well. Right. That's not the case a lot of the time, because if a business could just raise their prices, they would most likely raise their prices if they, they could would get away with it. They would just do that, right. They would just do it. <laughs> right. So, you know, why would they wait when there's a new tax or why would they wait when, you know, the money supply was weakened, which, um, you know, why would they wait until their own costs increase? You know, they would right. just raise their prices to it. increase their profits if they could do it. So, so, you're so you're saying that the prices are, are, are what they are because that's what they are, not because, you know. There, there is truth to it, though. Like, that, right there, eventually, it's going to be slapped on to their products if price, if, if, uh, eventually. if uh, their own costs increase so much, then they are, they are going to do it if their own but like, there is that cost kind of, of ceiling. producing something. There is that kind of ceiling yeah. of, of how much something costs, especially in non-essential goods, where people are just like, all right, well, that just costs too much, so I'm just not going to buy it. Right. Exactly. 
and, and that's where I was getting at was why the CPI is not the perfect measurement because um, because if they raise prices dramatically, people will purchase less of their products. So what people will do is that they'll downgrade their products. Mm-hmm. So it, you'll see it with like candy bars or something. Instead of re- um, you know reducing the price or, or um, increasing the price of a candy bar, they're going to just make a, a smaller size and sell it for the same price. Right. It's like the Big Macs. Have you ever eaten, have you yeah. eaten a Big Mac recently? And then no. compare that. Okay. Well, I haven't either, but uh, the, maybe a couple of years ago when I ate a no. Big Mac, I looked at it and I'm like, what the fuck is this? This thing is like smaller than the palm of my hand, which is admittedly large. But, you know, it. I remember when I was younger, Big Macs were actually big. Now they're just kind of Macs. To be very honest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, back in the day, the commercial for a Big Mac, it made it look like it was like this, you know, one pound monster Angus burger that would fill you up. And now Mm. they're, now they're, I guess, allegedly small. I haven't actually seen a Big Mac, so I don't know the real size. They're they're smaller. They're definitely smaller. I can tell you that. Well, yeah. So they're, companies will you know try to package something in a smaller size or they're going to start using cheaper ingredients Mm -hmm. so um right so the quality if the price does increase Mm -hmm. you may switch the products or or goods that you're consuming so you know if you're um let's just say if you uh eat organic pasta and you eat organic pasta three times a week and that box of pasta goes from $5 to $6, you may just buy the cheaper option. That's right. Even if it's a lesser quality. Mm -hmm. So the CPI doesn't take account like the reduction or the, um, the reduced service or the, um, you know, the decline of the service or the goods that you're getting. Right. The the worst standard of items that you're buying. That's like one of the main criticisms of, of the CPI. And it also, it's just very general as well. But I mean, I still think it is a useful tool just because it's kind of very macro and it's in it examining it and you can get kind of a, a, you can get a picture of it, just not the perfect picture of, of inflation. But if anything, it, it, it underestimates the amount of inflation going on in a country. Um, and just to give you some historical context, so from 1951 until 1966, inflation remained less than 2% a year. And then in 1966, it grew to 5.49%. And then it dipped back down to 3.27% by 1972. And then it went up and exploded to uh, 6.18% in 1973. Okay. And in 73, that's when inflation became a, like a recognized problem. Mm. Is this around the same that's time when, as a gas crisis? Yeah. Mm. It was around the same time as a gas crisis. And... Um, the price of meat in stores, um, you know, it doubled in three months. Um, and then, you know, next year inflation went to 11% and it didn't fall back below uh, 4% until 1983. So, you know, that year 1973 is kind of like the watermark of when inflation becomes like a national problem, a recognized problem, and it takes off and it, and it kind of cascades into a larger crisis from there. And the 1970s wasn't really a great decade for the United no. States, uh, economically no. speaking. So um, cars sucked in the 70s too. <laughs> yeah. So it's been it's been interesting to see how the government has reacted to this. 
and certain segments of the media. So I think overall the media has been covering this in a negative. So um, if you type in inflation right now, I think even MSNBC will have an article of how inflation has just hit a 30-year high. Um, but I have read some articles from, um, there was one from The Intercept and there was one from The New York Times about how inflation is good. And basically inflation what the is argument good. is, okay. what their argument is, and this is an argument that you'll, you'll hear a lot, um, at least with like maybe more kind of like left-wing uh, social Democrat types, that mm-hmm. the reason why inflation is good is that it lets borrowers pay lenders back with money worth less than it, it lets borrowers pay lenders back with money that is uh, worth less than when it was originally borrowed. So in other words, that the cash now is, is cash now is worth more than cash in the future. So inflation lets you pay lenders back with money that is worth less than, a, than it was when uh, it was originally borrowed. Does that Wait, make sense? Is this good for the no? Is this good for the consumer or the the lender? Well, this is the this is the argument. It's good for the lender. Oh, uh, no, I excuse see. me. It's good for the borrower. It's good for the borrower. Okay. So, All right, so if I borrow a hundred bucks today, right, and then a year from now, inflation, whatever, right, and that hundred bucks buying power is now actually ninety bucks, right? But I still have to pay back a hundred bucks because that was what I'm what I'm due for. Right. Well, well, so the lower class, the argument is that the lower class can pay back their debts in depreciating dollars. So let's just say that you take out a debt for $100 and then inflation increases and then, you know, uh, it increases by X amount of percent, then you will pay back that um, that $100 in a, um, in a in a higher inflationary rate. So you'll have more cash. There'll be more liquidity. So you'll be able to, it'd be easier to pay that back. Does that because make sense? it's worth less because the $100 yeah. is worth less. Because $100 is worth a lot less. Mm-hmm. I see. So do you see where I'm coming right now? That, yeah, that's no, the no, argument I, of why I get inflation it. I get it, is but good. But sure, but here, I, get, the, I get it. Mm-hmm. So here, here's the thing that um, I, I, the flaw with this logic is that it's, it oversimplifies it because it kind of puts... Sounds like it, yeah. It, it, <laughs> it's usually aimed for, you know, it, it's an argument that's saying, hey people who with lower incomes, this is good for you, even though prices are increasing because, you know, later on, you'll be able to pay back loans, any loans that you take um, with a with a weaker dollar, but it will be, um, you know, you'll have more cash on hand to pay back that loan. But it kind of assumes that the economy is simplified into poor people and rich people and poor people take out loans and rich people give loans. That's right. kind of like the di- uh, dichotomy that this this logic puts it in. Like, okay, like if you're poor, if you're poor, you take loans and give out loans, and that's right. it. Like that's the economy to in this, kind of like in this a world. Take from the rich and give to the poor, kind of deal. Yeah, we but it just assumes that all rich people or higher income people are bankers. Like, oh, they're just giving out loans, and all poor people are <laughs> borrowing money from those people. Like, that's right. not really the case at all. When, in fact, the reality rich is people borrowing. take out way more <laughs> loans than poor people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because rich people have the have the credit collateral the to, do so. mm-hmm. to do so so they can take out mm-hmm. way bigger loans so right. if anything this is this is helping them right it, you know it's much easier to take out a loan at a low interest rate when you already have assets if you have That's collateral right. you know banks will just mm-hmm. throw money at you lower yep. income people are con- are considered higher risk 
So it's so much That's harder right. for them to buy something like a house. You right. know, it's it's kind of crazy, man. We're this is like a generational problem for for our age group, like people who mm-hmm. are getting ready to start families and stuff, who want to move out. Well, I'm, I'm looking to buy a house right now, as we said in the beginning yeah. of the, the, the show. I'm moving to Puerto Rico so that I can purchase my first home out there. And, and dude, the, it's crazy. You're absolutely right. Because I don't already own a house, it's hard to get a mortgage for one. And because, I guess, in part inflation, and also because the market is crazy, everything costs way, way more uh, than what they did even five years ago, you know? So it's, it's, it's hard to even get into that market at all. It's hard for me to even get the loan in the first place. And I'm not a rich it, yeah, person. It's, so. Yeah, it's hard. You're, you're going to have to throw, throw, uh, you know, have a you certain have to amount. save and in a, throw in a, a lot of money down. Yeah. And it, that might be if you're, so I'm moving to Long Island, most likely after mm-hmm. I get married. And, um, you know, I live in Brooklyn right now. Mm-hmm. My fiance is from Long Island. I'm from Queens originally, but you know I've spent a lot of time in Long Island, so I know the area very well. And right. I'm, you know, the houses that we're looking at because we're, you know, looking at houses because we plan on moving there after next year. Mm-hmm. They're all seven hundred fifty thousand dollars minimum. Minimum, like to we're get, talking to about get anything that's reasonably good. Yeah, the small, the smallest, like really small houses are half a million dollars. Really tiny box of houses, and then right. you know, medium sized house that is reasonable is between six fifty on the very low end, and then um, you know eight hundred on the on the I guess the higher end. But right. they're really you really consider expensive. like how much updates do you need to do the home and things like that, which could also just jack up the the overall cost. And and you know the the, the biggest joke about all of this is that the mortgage rate for any of these homes is well more affordable than the rent that we pay here in new york city well yeah and it it is a total joke right so the trap is you don't have enough money to buy this house because you need to put down 20 percent of half a million dollars or more right but when you do that when you come up with the 20 percent to put down on this half million dollar home now you're going to pay less than what you usually did (laughs) To live somewhere and it's going to be a bigger place a better place it's going to be your place something you own an asset of yours something that'll that'll appreciate in value hopefully and which would give you the ability to use as collateral for future uh um financial uh decisions like purchasing another home or purchasing a bigger home or you know i don't know and anything you need <laughs> you know what i mean because that now that yeah. is an asset that you have for collateral it, it's a joke. It's, like, it is, it's a trap. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting. So I was talking to somebody who's older, much older than me, and um, he had bought a house in the 1970s when he was young for mm-hmm. like 25 grand. Mm-hmm. And the house is in Long Island, and that house is worth like 800 grand now. Wow. In Brooklyn, if you go, you know... I saw this this shitty this shitty house in Brooklyn, and I was like, "Man, I wonder how much that house is to sell." And I and I bet it was probably like one point two million dollars or something like that, just because right. the property is worth so much. But like the inflation rate is it mainly benefit like that really benefited people. Like definitely it benefited a lot of people in our country, but like not everyone. It was like more of just like a generation 
like the people coming out, like the middle class and the higher income people who were, um, you know, entering their professional lives in like the 70s and 80s. You know, those That's are the right. people who really benefited from that because when they bought houses, they just watched that thing. They watched those houses just skyrocket in value and didn't really do anything. And it basically was just welfare, you know, like right. it, when you think about it, it really the same of wel- welfare. Like it's just, you know, we're not giving you uh food stamps or, or uh, a welfare check, but we're going to inflate the the price of your house. So, right. You know, Which you the can income use as, disparity. A, as an asset, as a, as, a, as a point of leverage for basically anything you want, right? Yeah. And it's just like, and I think this stuff is, is where a lot of the, um, the political turmoil comes from right now in our country mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. is the wealth disparity because there's a lot of reasons for it, the wealth disparity and, and it's increasing now and it's it's um it's kind of scary uh just to see how polarized everyone is right now in the united states like people fucking hate each other like over over politics and uh it's not it's not very very healthy and i think that's why we try to not come into topics in a very partisan lens so that's i'm going to try to mm-hmm. criticize both size Democrats and Republicans, but you know, Joe Biden, his approval rating is 41% right now mm-hmm. in his first year. So that's down 11 points since spring, according to yeah. this Washington Post um, poll. I think it was the Washington Post ABC News poll. And he's down from 94 per, 94% from his own party to uh, 80%. And 70% of voters have said the economy is in bad shape. So um, to put this into context, he has a second worst approval rating after one year out of any president. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that's second only to Trump, who is at 35%. And usually... I'm winning. <laughs> I'm, I'm the yes. best worst yes. president I ever. I the best Hold out there, orange. Um. <laughs> So, I mean, to put this into context, there's usually a, a, a honeymoon phase when someone's elected. Right. So, and it usually I mean, lasts more than a couple of months, too. <laughs> yeah. So Truman was 75. Yeah. Biden's approval rating was pretty high the first couple of months. It was just people were kind of, you know, when I was, um, I was after Biden was elected in New York, there was like a big celebration. Pretty much everyone was like, yay, we got him out. And everyone was really happy. And uh, I think that that happiness lasted for about three months or so or four months. And, you know, think his approval rating, it actually turned with the Afghanistan um, debacle. And it's kind of funny because I actually think that overall, I think that obviously the the uh, with withdrawing from the Bagram Air Base first before evacuating mm. Kabul mm-hmm. sure seemed like a mistake. But, you know, I actually thought that's probably the best thing Biden ever did as pre- as a as someone in government was uh you know stick to that withdrawal after there was there was mm-hmm. so much political pressure to pressure to keep him in i was like right. oh wow that's like probably the best thing he's ever done ironically that's when his approval rating dropped cuz like the media <laughs> yeah. hit him from the media attacked him from the right and they were like mm-hmm. oh biden's actually weak and it shows you about our media and you know who who they really serve it's everyone's like oh they serve the left they serve like just corporate interests, they not really the left or the yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And um, so they attacked them for that. But, you know, ever since then, um, I think his approval rating dropped below 50% after that. 
And then now, since inflation has been hitting, it's, it's dropped all the way down to around 40, you know, 41. It was like 42% last week. Um, right. But yeah, there is no... So Truman was 75% his first year. Eisenhower was 68%. Kennedy was 78%. Nixon was 59%. Ford was 42%. And Ford was low because he wasn't even elected. <laughs> yeah. You know, Ford, Ford wasn't elected and he wasn't even Nixon's running mate. So it wasn't like Mike Pence or, or I guess Kamala Harris, right. you know, who were running mates of the president. Um, he Spiro Agnes was forced to resign because he had uh, tax evasion charges. Mm-hmm. So Gerald Ford was uh, brought in to be vice president, and then you know Nixon resigns because you know an embarrassment because he you know was committing a lot of crimes that were very transparent. And then Gerald Ford he pardons Nixon. And, uh, you know, everyone hates Nixon after that. Everyone hated Nixon at that time. So he right, pardons so him and then he's put in a Nixon idea. camp. You know, imagine yeah. if like Trump was charged with something and then uh, Mike Pence, he uh, pardoned him. People will be like, well, you're way too close to that camp. And, you know, his pro- people will be mad. Now, um, so George Bush Jr., he was 87%. Mm-hmm. approval rating right and i think everyone knows it's pretty clear that i think george bush jr was the worst president in my lifetime yeah you know yeah. at least at the very least in, in this you know the second half of the 21st or 20th century mm-hmm. um you know i i hate george bush he was at 87 percent. most people hate george bush um, right. republicans and democrats they most of them just despise this guy he was 87 percent. they do now mainly because <laughs> mainly yeah. because um you know, his response and, um, you know, his response to 9-11, like, even though it wasn't good in the long run, like, at least it was popular mm-hmm. um, at the time. But here's the thing. So Republicans, well, first and foremost, Democrats are kind of denying it. Like, you know, they're saying things like, oh, inflation is good. And, you know, they're kind of dancing Just around it and not addressing shit, the problem. Right? And at the same time, they're, um, you know, they're trying to get this uh, $1.75 trillion spending bill. Mm-hmm. And they're saying that's going to alleviate inflation. And, you know, they're blaming the price increases on things like price gouging. And, um, you know, they're, they're um, you know, they're just, they're not addressing the problem at all. And people are getting very, very frustrated with it. But on the other hand, you have Republicans on Fox News they're hitting them like, oh, the spending and the reckless spending is causing this inflation. Biden just inherited Trump's policies. Right. Like, like you like, did that, How bro. can you not address <laughs> the spending that went, gone, went down in the Trump government? Right. <laughs> it's just so, like, it's so dumb. Like, Remind me how many trillions politics, again uh, he Really, spent? <laughs> really just dumbs down every yeah. single conversation. It really mm-hmm. just makes it so much dumber. Like, right. how do you go there and act like, Trump was fiscally responsible. Like he spent more than anyone. Right. That he recklessly spent us to death. And like, for we're better or for the worse, consequences he spent more. of the spending right, right now. Exactly. Like the spending that took place in the final year of the Trump administration is, you know, that, that money that's circulating in, the, in um, our, our economy is one of the primary reasons for the, for, the, for the increased inflation right now. So like, how do you not, you have to, Republicans have to, you know, in a real world, in like 
or fair world, they would be responsible for that. But on the flip side, Trump just inherited those policies from Barack Obama. Right. And Barack Obama inherited those policies from George Bush. So it's all just like, it's a systemic problem. Um, and, uh, no, you know, everyone you know they, is... Who said who said the buck stops here again? What president was that? Yeah. Was that George Bush? No, no. It was, um, I think it might have been Johnson, if I'm not mistaken. But, wow. You know, he used to, he, he, I think he coined the phrase, you know, the buck stops here at my desk, right? And he was like responsible for everything, regardless if it was his fault or not. And I literally think the buck stopped there because that was the last time anyone <laughs> took any responsibility for any of the mistakes that they're... Um, that their administrations had made over the years, because you're, yeah. you're absolutely right. They they just you know, I can imagine what those what those meetings look like when you you know meet with the incumbent president uh, and you're the president elect and they're like, well, things are buddy. falling apart. <laughs> well, <laughs> this buddy. is hot potato right here. <laughs> Good like, luck. Like we are lucky that we have not had a full on crash. Right. <laughs> I feel like that's like would be the the context of a meeting. Like hopefully, right. well right. it's. It's um, but it's fascinating to watch mm-hmm. the Biden administration navigate this because they're just not addressing it at all. At all, no. and you should have saw Pete, Pete Buttigieg was on um, Morning Joe, mm-hmm. and this guy was saying that inflation was the reason for the increased inflation was because of lack of childcare. He was like, "Well, it's lack of childcare, which we're gonna, which which is going to be solved in our 1.75 trillion in, in our trillion dollar spending bill, and even MSNBC, even Mika Brzezinski, who you know is no Republican and hates Donald Trump and everyone you know who's associates with him more, you know, they obviously have a very bitter, ugly feud. She's looking at him like he's a, just an idiot. He's like, she's like, but wait, what? She's like, what? It was it was very fascinating and." Um, it's, uh, you know, I think I said this before that whoever was going to, when we were talking about the election last year, whoever wins the election is most likely going to serve a four year. I mean, whatever party wins the election is going to inherit a horrible, horrible economic crisis. And uh, most likely it will, it will be a short, a short uh, period between, uh, it will be a four year term. You know, whether it would be Trump, it would not be, you know, Trump plus another Republican running after him. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess we'll see, though. Um, we'll I hope see. things get better. We'll see. I guess we'll see. <laughs> Got to get into that that's housing the, that's market. That's the Fed's policy. So I, I guess we'll see what happens. money, you know? <laughs> and I guess, you know, the the other thing is that that is making it worse it, What is that, you know, the... There hasn't really been a a um, an increase in wages. No. Nope. So nope. earnings have actually have gone down over the past couple of months. That's right. So um, we actually make less just, than our prior uh, generation did by quite a bit, dollar for dollar adjusted for inflation. But yeah, it's it's tough, man. Like if um, if you're younger and you're coming out and you're trying to buy stuff and start families, it's not an easy time. Nope. And. Uh, it's uh, challenging. You just gotta do what you but, can to make your money. But you know what? This is this is the millennials' fault, though, right? Yeah, it's the millennials' fault. And oh, here's one more thing before <laughs> we go. And and I was telling this to the same guy I was talking about with the house. 
you know, how mm-hmm. he was able to buy this house mm-hmm. at a super low price and it's the value is crazy now. And I was telling him like, hey, you know, what I found in my generation, my generation is a lot of them are just horrible gamblers in like the stock market mm-hmm. and in, um, in like cryptocurrencies and just whatever, like whatever speculative asset that they think that will go up and alleviate, you know, their student debts or whatever, you know, uh, whatever debts that they have, they're, they're going full charge in that because there's really, you can't, the inflation is outrunning (laughs) our, is outrunning any type of savings account, you know, like that's right. Or a CD. Right. There's no, when I was younger, when I was in like a, you know, basic finance class, when I was like real young, like in middle school, they're like, well, you can put your money in a CD. And, you know, after that, it will be as a good investment. Like, you have to put like $100,000 in a CD to make any money. And why would you want to put it in a CD? It's, it's, um, where it's the money quite, gets depreciated by inflation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, there's, so you need to park your money somewhere, but like the only place to park your money are, are, uh, risky. Um, you know, you have to inherit, you have to take a risk on, and right. it's just, um, you know, made our, uh, our generation, I think, well, very other, prone to other options gambling in the stock market and and uh, you know trying to uh, be savvy and and uh, and outrunning this the inflation. And some rate. are like legitimately. Some, some are, are some. but most aren't. It's it's tough though because like if you go on uh, Robinhood, mm-hmm. and I've talked about this. I don't know if I ever talked about this on po- on the podcast, but the kind of shit that Robinhood pushes to. Um, Investor, new investors, because most people who are using Robinhood are, are new investors. Right. Um, you know, they're they're inexperienced traders. They're not people who come from financial backgrounds, and they are getting killed because they don't understand that the the um, the type of stocks that are being pushed on on them are not like they're kind of they're fad stocks, you know. Right. And they're just buying them. Call them growth stocks. Buying them. They're not <laughs> yeah. like long. Yeah, they're not growth stocks. Or it's so. Um, I think a lot of uh, younger guys, people are being taken advantage of because they're willing to, you know, maybe take that five thousand dollar bonus and be really risky with it. But they end up getting screwed. Yeah, man. All right. Um, that's my diatribe. Enough, enough for preaching. today. My <laughs> rant. Um, all right. Well, thanks for listening to another episode. I know this was not a history show. It was more about um, just a number of topics, but uh, we wanted to put something out. And uh, so we just figured we'd tackle the news. Um, we will be doing our best to put out more episodes f- uh, from the remainder of the year. And uh, make sure that you rate and review the podcast if you enjoy the show. And um, you can also join our Patreon where you can join our Slack. Um, anything else to say? No, man. I think that's about it for me. All right. Peace, everyone. Peace.
It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.